Yes, that's the sign of the werewolf. That's just a legend, though, isn't it? Yes, but like most legends, it must have some basis in fact. It's probably an ancient explanation of the dual personality in each of us. Greetings once again, and welcome to another episode of the Intermillennium Media Project Podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. And we are still in that season. If you're listening to this on the day that we release it, tomorrow is Halloween. It's all Hallows Eve Eve. (laughs) That means the veil... He's starting to think about getting thinner, but hasn't really gotten thinner yet. I feel that. Oh, dang, (laughs) Vale, I feel that. (laughs) So we've got one more Halloween-themed movie to talk about. Another movie I've made Ian watch. The last of the... uh, Is this the last of the Universal Monster films? Uh, mm, It depends on when you count from. Yeah, I guess there's uh, the... Or when you count the cutoff. There, There has been no end to the Universal Monster movies. It is definitely one of the later entries... In that first age of Universal Monster movies. Okay. Because we're jumping forward. Yes. We have visited 1932 and 1933. And now it's time to 1941. Yes. Jumping ahead uh, to the next decade to talk about The Wolfman. Oh, Yeah, directed by George Wagner and starring Lon Chaney Jr. Yes, the son of the great silent film godfather of monster movie roles, Lon Chaney, mm-hmm. who, who did not grow up as Lon Chaney Jr., but who took on the, uh, uh, the professional name of Lon Chaney Jr. Yeah. And he plays... The Wolfman. And this is an interesting one, because a lot of our other movies, in, in most of them, they have been about kind of our, our dashing hero facing down the monster. And this one is much more from the monster's perspective, because it is about the Wolfman. To reveal a little something early, he is the Wolfman. Yes, indeed. And that's no surprise. No, yeah. A, in the marketing of this movie, but also in the way that they set up this movie, you kind of know that's going to happen. It's kind of like Law and Order. If there's some name you recognize in the guest cast, you know he's probably the guy who did it. In the Universal Monster movies, the heroes and the villains are represented by two separate and equally important groups. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting that you say they're usually telling this story as the dashing hero versus the monster. And I can think of more exceptions to that than uh, than movie universal movies that comport with it. I don't know that there ever really was a hero in The Invisible Man. I would say the best friend. He was he failed at doing so, but he attempted to take that role and failed. I t- Oh, I don't know. He never showed any heroic nature to me. He was Everything he did was driven by cowardice, I thought. And mm-hmm. the, the, the first time we see him, it's he's telling Dr. Griffin's girlfriend 
don't you really have to move on jack has done something terrible he may never come back and uh, and by the way how about you and me yeah in some ways i feel like he wanted to be that hero and failed if he could get away with it without any cost to himself i'm sure he would have have gone with that mm-hmm. uh yeah frankenstein definitely an anti-hero we we and we absolutely have some heroes in uh, in dracula van helsing van helsing facing off against the creature of the night yes old man with gaze of steel oh my goodness <laughs> but yeah this one it's following it's following this young man coming to town and trying to get himself established in what his new life will be and this event takes over and forces the plot to move forward from there he's our fish out of water and now wolf out of the woods all at once story-wise he's supposed to be a fish coming back to water because he's coming back to the ancestral estate in england and his older brother has passed away so now he is the heir to the estate which is why he's come back to england after 18 years in america to take up the other role of of the person who's going to inherit when his father played by claude rains yep is no longer uh the lord of the manor so we actually get to see Claude Rains in this movie. Yes. And the, uh, the whole setup, like, it's great at building tension because there's this, like, yeah, I'm the American. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Casual. Hi. Yeah. And, and there's this formality to the manor and this small village aesthetic going on around it still. And so there's this layer of him not quite fitting in either location, but returning here with family history and possibility and everything else. And I've got to just talk about the casting and the accents a little bit, since we've talked about some of the characters. The, the thing about the accents in this movie is, for the most part, nobody cares. <laughs> nobody cares. I mean... Claude Rains is Claude Rains. He's cool, he's suave, he's got whatever accent he needs nailed down. And then Lon Chaney Jr., who is supposed to have been raised here in England, on this estate, and then gone over to America. So, and, I don't know, he looks every day of, of 36, at least, I would think. Yeah. So, he has spent at least half of his life, the formative half of his life here. And he does not have the slightest whisper of an English accent. And it never comes back the more he talks to his father and other English people here. And the guy who's about his age, who is now like the chief constable in the area, who stayed here and has lived and built a life for himself here. Yep. Does not have the least bit of an English accent. accent. (laughs) It's like... We're we're not quite Highlander problem is bad. We're not quite the (laughs) thickest Scottish accent about the movie about Scotsman is the ancient Egyptian swordsman who happens to be played (laughs) by... uh, Yeah, when when you've got Sean Connery... Exactly, it's like... You don't tell Sean Connery (laughs) to sound some other way. You hired him to sound like Sean Connery. I don't care if he's playing an Egyptian Spaniard who's 2,000 years old. Exactly, but 
we're not quite that bad here, but we're way closer <laughs> than you'd think. Why does ev- like why does everybody have this kind of East Coast American accent? <laughs> it's not even really West Coast. It sounded East Coast to me. It did. It sounded yeah. like this take took place in Maine at times. And I wanted to mention that and then move on from it because I kind of respect the fact that the movie just well here it is we hired these actors they're going to play these parts for you and i found myself just moving on from that so quickly when i was watching the movie i noticed it yeah but it didn't harm the movie in any way it harmed the movie far less than a bad accent or dialect would have so it's not a bad choice yeah assuming it was a choice that i wonder if there are outtakes of lon cheney's upper crust english accent somewhere i wonder that would have been wild he is returning, he meets his old friend who's now the head of the police, and he's exploring the, you know, he's returning home and meeting old friends, he's learning about the extensive uh, telescope work they're doing at the manor. Yes, his father is, is very much a, an amateur astronomer with a, a wonderful telescope that he's building in his observatory. Which kind of comes in as an early plot point, but... Well, it, it gives us a, us a chance to learn just, to, just how creepy Larry is. Yeah. Larry, you know, Lon Chaney Jr.'s character. Because he yeah. testing out the, he's, he had a lot of experience in engineering and such in, in uh, America. Not a lot of formal education, though, higher education. But in testing out this telescope that he's helping his father assemble, he, it's daytime, so he turns it on the town. Yeah. And notices the open windows and notices the open windows where the cute blonde is getting ready to uh, to go to work for the day. And this movie went from zero to creepy way faster than I expected. <laughs> and yet. We can talk about this some more later. I don't know that that's gratuitous as far as the movie goes, because revealing something like that about Larry's character, I think, is significant. Now, maybe in 19. 19- 41 it was considered a harmless laugh moment and it was no big deal and he talks about it he jokes with her about it later and and yet to me it reveals something that i think is important later about this character yeah in, in that that, it, that broken moral compass he might have in a movie where Everyone who's coming in kind of already knows from the promotion and everything else that our main character here is the one who will be cursed with lycanthropy and will be the Wolfman. Establishing him as a person who has such a far way to go in terms of becoming a better person, someone for whom being cursed with this is both warranted, not warranted feels wrong, but it makes sense in terms of He's putting things out there that could lead down that kind of awful path. Yes. And if he is going to get, if, it, if he's going to grow or become any better as a person from this, he's starting from this low point. Mm-hmm. It's a very effective. He's got to be unlikable to have a place to maybe fix himself. And that's a whole part of this film is yeah. kind of dealing with that there's a, a facing your own mortality but it's in the form of canine yeah we start off seeing the choices that he makes in a relatively low stakes situation mm-hmm. but that tells us something about how he makes choices exactly. are they impulsive does he think about them 
Does he think about others while he's making these decisions? And so on. And so being an impulsive person like that, he will go to the store that he sees that she lives over, where she works, and try to flirt and pick her up and ask her out on a date. And won't take no for an answer. Creepily won't take no for an answer. And he does buy something in the end. She's a cane. A wolf's head and pentagram uh, handle. And it then it significantly, the wolf's head is an ornate carving in silver. Yes. At the end of this cane. And this is also where earlier things about town legends involving wolf's bane and the full moon and, peop- and men turning into wolves starts to be shown. This is just something everyone in the town knows. It's just part of the local color, part of the local uh, folklore. And they have this wonderful rhyme that they, uh, they repeat several times early in the movie. Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. Absolutely. It, it's a thing, it's a, a setup that reminded me of some of the world building actually in later horror films like The Shining, where these, these little bits, just to add creepiness to the environment, just to kind of establish that this is a world where ideas like that are in the forefront of people's minds, where there's this, this looming, lingering thing. Well before the wolf man becomes a wolf man, the specter of what the narrative will do is in the story early. And it's important because to, to see that Larry is getting a dose of all this. And it's surprising that he doesn't know more about this having grown up there for most of his life or half of his life. Yeah, this seems but, like something much older than 18 years. Yeah, it's not something they came up with a few years ago. Hey, I hear Larry's coming back. What if everyone memorized this creepy poem I wrote two weeks ago and we just freak the heck out? <laughs> and we insist that it's from 1678. Absolutely, we just freak him out. It's going to be great, guys. Oh, I like that. But the fact that we see Larry getting dosed with these ideas adds to the questions that I had later about what is really happening and what is Larry persuading himself is happening and... To what extent is the monster real, or is it purely psychological? This is a more psychological movie than any of the other monster movies, because part of the tension is, is there really a monster? There's a lot of disagreement throughout the movie about whether there is any monster. But all of this kind of boils to to a, a, a major crescendo when, during a fair... If I remember correctly, during a festival, uh, Larry and his kind of begrudging date and her friend go off to go see a fortune teller. Yeah, the uh, the girl that that Larry was hitting on is is Gwen Conliffe, played played by Evelyn Anchors, and she eventually uh, kind of meets him to go to uh, to go out that night. But she brings with her her friend Jenny Williams, played by Faye Helm. And Jenny is far more interested in Larry than, than Gwen appears to be. Yeah. Because Gwen is engaged. Yeah. That it, doesn't seem to deter Larry very much. It doesn't deter Larry, which is, adds to a layer of the extra creepiness. It does. But they're going to so see what's going on because, and I'll use the term because that's the term that was used in the movies in 1941, there are gypsies that have come to town. 
Yes. <laughs> including performers and a fortune teller. And the fortune teller is Bela. Bela. Played by Bela Lugosi. Yes! We get him back in a Universal Monster movie that doesn't involve uh, Dracula or Ad- Abbott and Costello. And he's, he is almost unrecognizable compared to those characters, but he does such a good job because he just knows how to, how to play with inflection and tone and pausing. And you give this person, a, you, you give Bela Lugosi a line and he can spin it into golden perfection. He has got skill in terms of that. So giving him this, per- this character who's supposed to be mysterious and tapped into something more and aware of things that others are not is so powerful. It is a powerful performance. I love uh, Lugosi in this. It's a character who he has a special ability that horrifies him and yet he can't not use it and yet he's got other secrets beyond the fact that he can tell fortunes and you get a little bit of his cool and restrained and holding himself back kind of mode against larry's like hey okay yeah we'll pay a coin for the hey kind of energetic attitude to it that carefree self-focus versus this worldly fear and calm combination is such an interesting fire meets ice for a moment which also means that when something spooks Bela Lugosi's character it really hits you yes this guy cracks for a second and you're like oh no things are happening and Lugosi gets very very upset because he sees a pentagram on Jenny's hand mm-hmm. while he's telling her fortune. And we've already learned from the legend that the werewolf will see the pentagram on his next victim. So we know Bela is a werewolf. Yep. And yeah, things don't work out well for Jenny. No. She, uh, she is, is, uh, is chased across the the forest by the werewolf and is attacked. But Larry, who has taken advantage of the fact that Jenny wanted to go in and get her fortune told to get a little alone time with Gwen, yeah, sees that Jenny is in some kind of distress and goes over and kills this monster that is uh, this this wolf. He says. I saw her being attacked by a wolf, so I hit the wolf. With, he, with his silver-headed cane, he attacks and beats the wolf, but not before it gets an attack back on him. Yes, he learns, he finds later he's been bitten, but a small price to pay to get rid of this monster, but unfortunately, he was not in time to save Jenny. She's been killed. Next day, and they're taking a look at the scene... They yeah, there's no dead wolf there. No. There's dead Bela. Obviously bludgeoned. And the cane he, that Larry dropped is still there. And Larry is, is insisting that it was a wolf and he hit a wolf. It even bit me. Look, 
Oh, wait, no, the wounds that I say I got are already healed. Oh. And others start making excuses for him. His, his father and the doctor are saying, well, either what Larry is saying is true, or Larry is just so distraught because it was in the dark and in the fog, and he heard cries of distress from somebody. He thought this was a wolf. He made a mistake. Now he's under terrible distress, so you can't necessarily take seriously anything he says. He's, they want to put him in this little trip cocoon. back from America. Right, yeah. He's, he's in an unfamiliar place. So they're making all these excuses. And meanwhile, Larry really is in distress because now he thinks, I, I killed this old man and I didn't want to, I didn't mean to, and I don't think I did. So what really happened? And we watch as that surface panic and paranoia starts to seep deeper into Larry. Yes. And he goes back to the gypsies. Well, he doesn't even intend to go back to them. Yes. He, he, he walks past and she's just like, you. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Get in here. I'm not so sure. <laughs> oh, get in here. That's right. So, you killed the wolf. Yep. That was my husband. I thought so. No one believes me. Did he bite you? Yes. Well then, wear this. You're a werewolf now. I don't think I am. Wear it. You're a werewolf. It'll protect you and the people around you. Yeah, it's like, don't. You're a little pendant. Exactly. It's just like, <laughs> there's kind of a, well, here's your lot, kid. Don't be an idiot. So now he's had this werewolf idea reinforced again by his experience and by what this lady is saying. Mm -hmm. Oh, and by the way, as soon as she's done talking to him, Word goes through the camp, and everybody in the camp packs up and leaves because there's a werewolf around, and it's not the one we know. Which, which I, I, I want to put a pin in that and bookmark it for later, because there's something fun to be said about how the entire camp treats the fact <laughs> that there's a new werewolf in town. <laughs> and yeah, the rest of the movie, or, or a big chunk of the movie, especially this middle part, it's Larry trying to figure out what is true and what is true about him mm -hmm. along with others trying to protect him and and make decisions about how best to address this because his father is very concerned i've already lost one son and this is my only remaining son who is this estate going to go to who is this land going to go to who's going to look after this village if there's no one here at the estate is it going to go to some distant cousin somewhere is the crown going to take it he's got lots of questions and so he kind of wants to protect his son for a number of reasons. Absolutely. There are people who will essentially do whatever he says, like the doctor. There are people who, they don't have it out for Larry, but like the constable, he, the, the, the police chief there, he wants to know what's, what the truth is to protect people. Mm-hmm. But we do eventually see Larry turned into a werewolf. Yes. So after having been given this charm, he then gives it to Gwen, thinking that if it protects you from werewolves, she needs protection, not me. Yes. And then, without this charm keeping him at, from transforming or protecting him from the, the curse upon him, we watch him transform, and this transformation is just a fascinating bit of cinema, because it, he kind of, 
you you watch him kind of degrade for a moment. He starts hunching and cowering and being cold, but also pulling off his shirt because there's this itchy problem, and he's hairier than he had been, and he almost looks terrified and then almost like giddy. He can't even handle it. And it's interesting to go back to these original movies in these series because there's there's an iconic shot where you see Lon Chaney in full face with with cuts and superimposition. We you watch him transform mm -hmm. into the Wolfman. That does not appear in this movie. No, it's that scene you described, and eventually he sits down in a chair and pulls off his socks, and it's a close up of his bare feet in which we see this transformation as they get hairier and as they turn into these elongated wolf paws. And then we see them walking across the, the floor to the open window. So we never, we'd never get that shot of a whole guy turning into the werewolf. But that shot that they give us is weird and creepy. That is such a, yeah. Watching the feet convert as, and like slide from, transition to transition into this full costume kind of character is wild yeah there's something th there is something about seeing someone's face change into that of a werewolf but i mean in the the 40s universal style werewolf it's a guy with excessive facial hair when you get down to it and a bad orthodontic issue yeah watching his feet turn into something other than human feet that drives home the fact that he is transforming into a different kind of creature. It drives that home far more than a time lapse of his beard growing possibly would. It is a powerful moment. I'm amazed I haven't seen more of this moment being parodied in something. I'm amazed I haven't seen someone with a mascot costume to promote or a fursuit or something do a version of this and <laughs> post it online because there's something absolutely visceral in a different way about <laughs> seeing this transformation into something else there that i'm amazed i haven't seen someone else try to use this effect it really does it does that face transformation is so much better known but this i to me now that i've seen this movie again it uh is a powerful scene absolutely and then we see the werewolf out rampaging or or stalking or finding yeah, prey he's kind of like learning how to wander around and like you can tell there's still a little bit of him in there but it's he's like trying to to understand what's going on meanwhile the village has set out traps or whatever attacked the girl this girl and stuff. yes and we know that there's something human about him still because evidently the the wolfman still has a fashion sense yes but it is a different fashion sense than larry's <laughs> yeah because when we see we we see these distance and, and and creepy shots in the woods and finally we see the wolfman and it's it's lon cheney jr in the the excessive facial hair and and dental prosthesis costume and he's wearing like a work shirt yeah. That we've never seen Larry wear anything like this before, and he's wearing dark pants. Like, yeah, uh, and I think it's an open work shirt, if I remember correctly, right? It's like, it's buttoned up, and it's got two button pockets on the breast, and it's got long sleeves. It's the kind of work shirt you'd put on. 
if you wanted to save some work from the costume department, so they only had to do your face and hands and feet. Absolute. Oh, yes. There's also something about it, though, that, oh, no, like the moment he comes around the he comes around the corner and he gets into the light and he's wearing this like workman's outfit with this <laughs> like almost Bob Vila kind of aesthetic. Yes. Going on. It really felt it, to me, it screamed in the weirdest way, like uh cologne brand or something. It's like <laughs> Wolfman from Universal. It's like, why? Why is he styled? Because of the he's last- also got this like wild part to his hair. Yes, he's got he does. like styled quaffed hair going on and the last time we saw him when he was transforming into this mindless beast that wants nothing but to feed he was wearing suit pants and a sleeveless t-shirt and that was it so evidently sometime before he got out into the woods he decided to get dressed yeah which doesn't strike me as likely yeah larry larry shops at men's warehouse the wolfman shops at lowe's <laughs> okay <laughs> I- yeah. Long Chaney Jr. for Carhartt. <laughs> so, yeah, that every time the Wolfman shows up on screen as the Wolfman, I keep... Where, where does he hide the clothes? And why does he put them on? Uh, he was bitten by a wolf. His outfit was bitten by the Wolfman's style, which means <laughs> when he transforms under the moon, his shirt and pants also hey, transform. Maybe. But yeah, he um, he goes out there. He gets caught in a trap. The yeah. the old lady helps him out. First thing, that, yeah, first thing that the Wolfman does in the Wolfman when he turns into a Wolfman is walk into a bear trap and have to have his leg fr- freed by the old lady who gave him a thing to prevent exactly this, and is wandering out, kind of like, "Yep, thought you wouldn't do that. I've got this thing. It'll turn you human again." Get your leg out of there and go home. But he does kill a villager. The authorities still think it's just a wolf that's that's out here, even though there have been no wolves in these woods in a long time. Actually, it's the second night that he gets caught in the bear trap. First night time, he manages to catch up with somebody and kill them. After oh, yeah. that, they set the bear traps, and that's when uh, Maleva uses a spell to temporarily change him back into human form. So that he can free himself. Oh, yeah. He attacks it outside the graveyard at the church. I forgot about that. Right. Because we'd previously seen, you know, Jenny's funeral. Mm hmm. And, uh, and every, uh, and, but even before he becomes uh, a werewolf, when Jenny has been found and she's being buried and all this, everybody in town is looking at him and, and more than half of the people are looking at him as a murderer who's getting away with this because of who his father is. Mm-hmm. And that's another weird psychological pressure that is now upon him. And he decides eventually, this is too much. I have to get out of here for everybody's sake. He goes to tell Gwen, and but she wants to run away with him. Of course, it's a movie. She's fallen in love with him and is happy to leave her fiancé. Uh, yeah, it's just kind of just, Mm. remember how i said that gave him room to grow earlier <laughs> it doesn't really let that keep happening well if to the extent he grows it's not necessarily in a positive direction yeah no yeah, that he grows hairier not better it shows him being guilty mm-hmm. but feeling guilty isn't the same thing as making moral choices 
and we see him being one and not the other. Yeah. But yeah, Gwen wants to run away with him, but he's like, that's not the point. The point (laughs) is that I'm trying to get away. Especially since I now see a uh, pentagram on your hand. Yeah. Um, hmm. I need to get the wolf out of here very fast. And he tells his father, I'm the, I'm the werewolves and I killed Bela and that's how I need to get out of here. And they tie him up and his father, of course, believes he's just, you know, mentally distressed and wants to keep him safe. And that doesn't work. But, uh, when the moon rises, he breaks out and goes out and attacks Gwen. And that's one of those moments where we've seen him intentionally not want to, and now we see the Wolfman go against that, and it does make it vague as to how much he is the one in control during Wolfman time. It seems to me that the Wolfman, that the, the, the wolf form is just controlled by animal instinct. Mm-hmm. I, Bela seemed so unhappy with his state that I don't think he was making a decision to attack Jenny at the beginning. And I, so I don't know. I don't think Larry is anything about Larry is making a decision. He is just if, if he's actually turning into a wolf. I think the wolf is just acting on instinct. But it's a, it's an open question. I agree. It is. But in a parallel to that first werewolf attack we see in the whole film. While he's attacking Gwen, Sir John takes up his you know, takes up Larry's silverhead cane and attacks this wolf, this creature that's attacking Gwen and beats it over the head with it. So Larry's father, not recognizing this wolf as anything to do with his uh, son, mm-hmm. beats the wolf to death with the silver cane. And then when he dies, he turns back into Lon Chaney Jr., just like uh, Bela did. Exactly. Well, Bela turned into Bela Lugosi, but... And that's where it ends. With this creepy parallel, but I don't believe anyone else got attacked by the Wolfman to become the next Wolfman at this ending fight, from what we saw. It didn't appear to be. It didn't, didn't look like, uh, like his father was bitten. So this that. was an end of a loop but it's a parallel in such a stark and distinct way. And all of those concerns about what will happen to the town, what will happen to the family manor, all of these things that he was coming to deal with are left hanging and open as this question comes through. Also this question of, was he uh, turning into a wolfman or did the kind of group delusions filter through? Because in talking with the doctor and others, they, the idea of lycanthropy as a form of mental illness and the, the be- people's belief that they are turning into animals in their, their, their subsequent behavior as if they were animals is discussed. And they're talking about, well, this is, you know, it's a psychological condition. You don't believe the, the, the uh, folklore about people actually turning into wolves and things, do you? So they, for the viewer as well, they make very clear, this could be a monster movie where somebody's really turning into a monster. This could be a psychological horror movie in which someone thinks they are turning into a monster and therefore behave like a monster, consciously or not. And 
I could kind of believe that under certain conditions, if someone's behavior is so animalistic and you're you're confronting them in the dark and they are attacking someone as if they're an animal, you could respond to that and treat them like an animal and 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 kill them because you think you're killing an animal. They leave that as a possibility, which is is fascinating. This is seminal cinema of psychosomatic spookiness. <laughs> I am so glad we checked the microphones before we started. Yay! <laughs> Absolutely. The fact that they leave that open compared to the other Universal Monster films is so fascinating. Because this is got that like questioning ending in some ways. I could see it being read easily as this big reveal that it's proven true, but the way they set it up before means that that change, that spell breaking and people seeing his dead body could just be the illusion in their minds breaking. And that's left vague, and it's brilliant. And that's what really draws me to this movie. It's, having seen it again now, it's way up there in terms of my favorites of the the classic era Universal Monster movies. It's also something where the, the transformation thing notwithstanding, it doesn't rely upon dramatic, big, loud, bright effects of various kinds, the way The Invisible Man did, or the way Frankenstein does, or even The Mummy to some extent. Yeah. Like Dracula, this is something that would have worked very well as a stage play. Very well Because as a so stage much play. of it is these transitions of, of place and time. And in between, we've got people discussing ideas and emotions. So I think that about brings us to our final questions. Uh, so stay tuned for those. But in the meantime, if you would like to find more of the Intermillennium Media Project podcast, go to immproject.com, or your browser might require the three W's, www.immproject.com. And that's where you will find all of our back episodes, including... The Invisible Man and the Mummy and all of our other Halloween episodes over the years. You'll also find our Patreon, where you can support the podcast and feel good knowing that you're helping me buy DVDs to subject Ian to, and where you will also get additional audio content. And you will also find links to our contact page, where you can, can contact us either online or by sending actual physical mail to our P.O. Box, and you'll find a link to our shop and to our discord if you're interested you in be, uh, contacting yeah. us there yeah you want to be as stylish as the wolfman during transformation go pick up an immp t-shirt <laughs> absolutely and ian where can people find you online i can be found as item crafting most places item crafting live on twitch and at the uh still transforming under the light of the full moon into its final form itemcrafting.com and you can find me at bymatthewporter.com. You'll find there links to anything I'm doing online, including a link to my YouTube channel where you will find The Draft House Diaries, a movie vlog where I review every one of my visits to the Alamo Draft House Cinema. But before we get to our final questions, Ian, you just mentioned something that's, that's worth uh, remarking on. You mentioned a full moon. Yes. They don't talk about full moons in this movie at all. They don't, do they? They talk about when the, the, uh, when the moon, when the, when the autumn moon is bright in the, the, the rhyme, 
but it's not something that only happens periodically on the full moon. That's part of the Wolfman lore that is not addressed in this movie. Wow. I hadn't picked up on that. In some ways, the concept of certain of these monsters is so well ingrained into popular culture that I'm immediately applying the rule set I know from elsewhere to this character. Indeed. Indeed. That's fascinating. I think that leaving things like that out give us more room to think maybe this is just a psychological illness. Well, it is time for our final questions. So, Ian, screen or no screen for the 1941 The Wolfman? It is not easy to watch, but this one is a screen for me. It's it's rough to see in certain places where that older style filmmaking is not as snappy as I love. It kind of can, this type in this era can be a little hit or miss in my opinion. But there's just so much good stuff and there's so much interesting psychological horror that I think that this is definitely a screen, especially if you're looking for that looming creepiness, not that jump scare creepiness during this Halloween season. This is a good option. It's a screen for me as well. The filmmaking, I think, has advanced since the, uh, the 1930s, and it's um, a snappier movie to watch. Our lead character is not a pleasant person, not somebody I'm rooting for necessarily, but I think Lon Chaney Jr. still gives an interesting performance as this flawed person beset with such weird circumstances and decisions. And I do find myself wondering to what extent does some of the content of this movie reflect the way the world had changed from the very early 30s into the beginning of the 1940s. Yeah, it's, it's a different kind of environment for, for these, both in cinema and in the world it wants to depict. Yeah, and you know, the, 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 there were a lot of people, a lot of humans turning into monsters in the early 1940s. Mm-hmm. So, we've got the... Uh, before we get into our, our next question, we've got the list of other movies from this one. <laughs> yes, the, the revived reboot or rest in peace is, is a, a weird question for, uh, for a Universal Monster movie. What have they done already? Which is also very interesting because The Wolfman has four more movies, but they're not Wolfman movies, air quotes. <laughs> Frankenstein meets The Wolfman is the next thing. Two years later, huh? where in order to deal with a case of lycanthropy, someone searches out Dr. Frankenstein. And finds out that he's been dead for 50 years because he worked in the 1980s. Crossovers abound. (laughs) But then we have House of Frankenstein, followed by House of Dracula, followed by Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Now, did they all like live on the same cul-de-sac? I guess so. I do love how every single one of these ends with a comedy group meets monster. (laughs) Yes. That constantly is happening. (laughs) It's like, this is all canon. (laughs) The final monster in the Universal Monsters lineup is showbiz, people. (laughs) Um, But of course, it's then had remakes and reboots and other versions from there. There was a... uh, a twenty a two thousand ten movie starring Benicio del Toro, who also produced 
that takes very clear inspiration from this one, apparently. There was a Jack Nicholson version some uh, years prior to that. Mm-hmm. But, so I think that the concept of, like, revive, reboot, rest in peace on the Wolfman is hard because it's getting revived and rebooted constantly. Oh, yes. But the things I want to point out is that there was three versions of this story that I was very fascinated by uh-huh. from the way this depicted it. The first one is the village is so much more of a presence and a location here with its myths and its own history involving lycanthropy. But we follow Larry for all this film. I'd be fascinated to see a version of the Wolfman story like it's shown in this movie, but from a the, vil- the people in the village perspective, a little bit more like the modern The Last Voyage of the Demeter, which we saw for your Draft House Diaries series. But give us the story about there was a, sm- a, a thing that would occasionally come here and a legend started forming. But then there's the tale that that thing was killed. And now there's a, a new one without the control in our woods being a danger in a way we haven't seen in a while is a wonderful story. And give us the Wolfman in the shadows in the background coming out to attack us instead of following his decline. I think you've got something there. That is a very interesting idea. And your point about the place is really interesting because one of the ways this differs from the other monster movies we've watched is it is not about a person creating a monster, not about a person choosing to do things which turn him into a monster. It is about someone becoming a monster through no choice or fault of his own, whatever other flaws he might have had. So where the other movies seem to be, the place is, you know, the monster is something that is happening in this place, or the monster is something that is happening to this place. In The Wolfman, it's almost a sense of, this is something that the place is doing to him. Yeah. And almost like this location and its history is the active agent that is turning him into a monster with its folklore and its moon and everything else. So I like the idea of exploring that place more if the place is the is is has more agency than our character does. Another interpretation I'd love to see is that Bela and Maleva were part of this traveling carnival, this traveling group that was going from place to place, obviously. And she was completely aware and working with his lycanthropy, from what I understood. I am fascinated with the idea of following a group where one of the members has this horrible, supernatural, communicable curse to him. And the group kind of protecting and working and managing, trying to keep him safe and keep others safe from him while being part of this little collective would be fascinating. That would be. Give us the road story with that. We have to bring the threat into town and then, can, and then corral and control the threat. But the threat is our friend. Yes, it's a lot of interesting, uh, a lot of interesting allegory there in terms of 
membership in a community and mutual caregiving. And, and that's particularly interesting when you consider the fact that uh, the sorceress Maleva was Bela's mother. Mm-hmm. Something that wasn't clear to me at the time when I was watching this, but Mrs. Darling Wife pointed out how that relationship was so important and how she starts to kind of transfer that relationship to Larry when Bela has been killed, but Larry has the same condition that Bela had. Yeah. So there's this, you know, we've already got one caregiver, but when you ap- apply that to the rest of the group, especially the group that when they learned the person they knew who they might have all known had this issue is dead and someone else has it their response is to pack up and leave that says something if they knew about his lycanthropy earlier that response is telling and that that kind of sparked a a possibility in my mind it's one thing to deal with someone with that condition when they are part of your family part of your community they're romany it's another to deal with somebody with that condition who is part of the outside world who is not always friendly to us. Yeah. And finally, I'll admit, in the modern heroification of monsters stories, which is such a common thing. Oh, yes. The way she keeps showing up and handing him ways to deal with this or getting him out of traps and such can be very much the motherly side of things, but it is also very modern mentor kind of figure about (laughs) someone who's been gifted a supernatural set of abilities yes there's kind of a weird european common writer thing going on it's like well you've got the furry suit now you're going to either let it control you or control it and fight (laughs) something i'm teaching you now because you killed the last person who was using the power (laughs) there's something kind of like horrible version of green lantern going on but i could see someone taking this in an interesting way by giving us a you better control this because you've got a thing to fist fight in a week kind (laughs) of heroic wolfman story yeah well i i am to, to answer our questions as we usually put them i'm very open to a reboot but we're always going to have those exactly. the story of the wolfman there is so much so much story there that you can tell about humans and their condition and their experiences and their choices that people are always going to make movies like this and i've liked a lot of them but i'm really interested in some of your ideas of a revival show us other things that are set in the same continuity as this one yeah different takes different perspectives different linger on different aspects of the questions this one brings up and you could get different films with different points to make i feel very much so yeah that's that's where i'm landing on this this was a fun one this has been a fun month getting to kind of fill out the rest of this uh this loop it has and there are other universal monster movies but the the wolfman kind of ends that first classic period for me that starts with dracula and goes for well a solid 10 years Absolutely. 1931 to 1941. It, and, and that as a grouping is still so prevalent in popular culture. The, the Universal Monsters took a bunch of disparate horror characters and brought them together into a brand. And that brand has kind of gone beyond Universal and is becoming, well, Universal in that sense. The chances of seeing a Dracula uh, vampire character next to 
a Frankenstein's monster, next to a mummy, next to a wolfman, there's this establishment that, oh yeah, they're in the same world. They might even be friends or enemies, but their, their juxtaposition is no longer surprising. And that's what this grouping of, mon- of movies helped establish and start. And of course, there were plans to make a Wolfman movie as part of the Universal Dark series before it was abandoned. I don't know anything about who might have been cast in that, but but I could certainly see, uh, I can certainly imagine a number of contemporary actors who could do interesting things with that, especially if they kept some of the characterization and some of the ambiguity of the original. I don't know who they were going to cast for that movie anyway, but why in my head does it immediately jump to to Joel McHale as Larry, <laughs> working too well. Oh goodness gracious! I can hear. I can imagine that working. Yes, I can imagine that the kind of confident but creepy, glad-handing guy back from America, and he talks like he grew up in America, and, a- and-, and-, and able to look panicky <laughs> in an empty room at what's happening, just right. Oh, it kind of works too well. That does work far too well. <laughs> I want to see that now. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm going to be imagining that for a while. Oh, good. But I guess that does uh, wrap it up for Halloween 2023. The spooky month is ending. If you are, if you're observing or celebrating Halloween, or if you have done so, I hope it is enjoyable or was enjoyable. We will be back next year with more Halloween stories for you. But in the meantime, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with more tales of other media from the 20th century. Ah, the spookiest century. I guess. <laughs> so far, maybe you're right. So far, maybe. Ha <laughs> <laughs> In the meantime, go find something new to watch. <laughs>